If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the book of Acts, chapter 11. The book of Acts, chapter 11. You'll want to find your place in a Bible this morning if you can, or look on with someone who has a Bible. We will not have the scriptures on the screen today, and so there should be a Bible also perhaps in a pew rack or somewhere nearby, and maybe you can use one of those as well. Acts chapter 11. The title of this morning's message is Sink or Sin. Sink or Sin. And it is part of a series of messages we've been studying about the God who sins. We've learned that when God gets ready to do something, when he acts, he sends someone to represent him, to act. And he empowers them, he informs them, he prepares them, he protects them, but he sends them when he wants to do something. And so in Acts chapter 11, in verse 19, we read, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and so it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And in these days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Now skip to chapter 13, verse 1. Barnabas and Saul made that trip, and then they came back to Antioch, and it says, Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And they ministered to the Lord and fasted. As they did that, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands hands on them, they sent them away. 
So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they, tr- they sailed to Cyprus. Father, this is your word. We are your people. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would cause us in these next few minutes to see and to truly come face to face with you and to hear your voice and your heartbeat. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. That's an interesting picture on the screen, isn't it? That's a bell tower of a church, and that's not a flood. That's where it lives now. That bell tower is part of a 14th century medieval church and a town that was flooded in 1950 on the border between Italy and Austria. Lake Russian Sea is the name of it. It's about two and a half miles squared two and a half square miles in size, and when they flooded that lake, some almost 1,300 acres of farmland were flooded with it. The little town of Graun, which is where this church was, the town of Graun, and several other villages were also flooded. People fought it. They didn't want it to happen. They knew as early as 1939 that this was going to happen, and then World War II took place, and Everything was delayed. The villagers protested. They, they fought it. They didn't want it to happen. But when it did happen, they had to leave. And it was literally sink or sin. And so there's a new town called Ground. It's above water. It's upper ground. This one is lower ground. No pun intended. And so this Bell Tower sits there out in the water. And I, this morning, would like to use that as a parable for the church. Because the church was not made to live underwater. The church was not made to exist like this, not as a structure and not as a people. And so the church has a purpose, it has a function. We exist for a a very real purpose purpose that God has assigned to us. We know the Great Commission. Many of us, most of us perhaps, can quote it, that we're to go and make disciples, that we're to baptize them and and teach them. Jesus promises in that going that he is with us in the going. I'm not sure that promise exists if we're disobedient, but if we go, he says, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age in this mission that he has for his people, the church. And so, very literally, if we lose our sense of mission, in a, in a very picturesque way, perhaps, we sink. We lose something. We lose something very real. For the last 20 years, people who study statistics have told us every single year that as Southern Baptists, and that's the denomination that we affiliate with as a church, that as Southern Baptists, there's, there are reasons for concern. Every year our membership goes down 
as a denomination. Every year, our, our uh, church count is struggling. Every year, our baptisms go down. Last year, we baptized fewer people than we had in over 70 years since 1946. And so something is terribly wrong. And our leadership on a national level, seeing this, has multiple times sponsored task forces and study committees and people to try to figure out what's happening and what's taking place. Each time they come out with a report, nothing changes. They know, and we've known this since I began ministry in the early 1980s, that new churches, new churches have a tendency to reach more people than existing churches, statistically, percentage-wise. That on a per 100-person basis, a church that's less than five years old will reach three times the number of people, statistically, that a church that's older than 15 will reach. When a church is young, 80 to 90% of the people coming the door have not been affiliated with the church before. They're lost. They're not Christians. They, they don't belong to anything. In newer churches, 80 to 90% are, are new people. We've always known that new groups start new things and they reach new people. We've always known this. And it's somewhere around the age of 12. I'm not kidding. Somewhere around the age of 12, statistically, and it's almost re very rarely is it overcome. But somewhere around the age of 12, a church has reached its peak in terms of its size and the people that it's going to reach and what it's going to be. Now, it doesn't have to be that way. I'm not saying that that's what God intends, and I'm not saying that statistical impossibilities aren't blown away by the Holy Spirit. I'm just telling you the way it is. And our leadership, knowing that, has put a renewed emphasis on starting new churches in North America. And so you will hear that if you go out at all and listen to our national leadership. You will hear a tremendous emphasis on starting new churches. And we should start new churches. And churches should start new churches. We're not talking about getting on a plane and flying outside the boundaries of the United States. We're talking about coming to the fourth most lost nation on the planet when we talk about starting churches in the United States. And so... There's this, there is this need, and so every year, just as Southern Baptists, not counting our other brothers and sisters and other denominations, but just as Southern Baptists, we're starting anywhere, it varies from 500 to 1,000 churches a year. It's not enough. We're still baptizing less and less and less. Our membership is still in decline. Why? Because churches are closing about as fast as we start them. My argument this morning, and what I believe is the basic word from the Lord that we're going to see in this text, is that if we're not ascending church, we're a sinking church. If we're not a people on the move, if we think for a moment that we can stand still and please God, we are missing the very best that God has for us. Henry Blackaby was the one, and we taught this last year when we studied experiencing God. He said, you cannot stay where you are and go with God. Any time you begin to serve him, there's going to be change in your life, and you're going to have to make major adjustments in order to move from your agenda to his agenda. It's inevitable. We see it in Scripture. We see it in real life. We know it's true. And so there's no such thing as a, a low adjustment 
ability to follow God. It is inevitable. So, I guess there are two questions that I want to pose this morning. And um, the first one that comes to mind, and I've just scratched some things in the margin here, excuse me. How does a church become a sending church? How does a church become a sending church? And, and the other question is, if God is a sending God, if that is his heart, if we see that in the Old Testament, and we do, and we have, and we see that in the New Testament, and we've seen it all through the Gospel of John, and we've seen it in so many other places. If it's true that our God is ascending God, how can I get in on that as an individual? And so as we move through these, these four things that I want to share with you, these apply to churches. They also apply to individuals. And so in that passage of Scripture we read, we read about the church in Antioch. I believe there are four characteristics here that can apply to an individual or to a church. Here's the first one I see. That they possessed, that they had, I want to show you where it came from and how it happened. But the thing that they had that too many churches are missing in the West, in North America. Now, if if you do get on a plane and fly to a third world, you're going to see these qualities. Because the church is exploding around the world. There are more churches being started in this next hour that we spend together in this service that were started on the day of Pentecost, and that's happening every hour of every day that you and I live. It's a great time to be alive in the, in the history of the church. This is it, right where we are. But we don't experience that. We don't feel that because 93% of the people being saved in the world today are not being saved in North America. They're being saved outside the West. And so here's the first thing that I see in this church that that we should aspire to, that we need to look at very carefully. And this is inner passion. Inner passion. In those opening verses that we read, we we read about how there was a persecution that broke out after Stephen was martyred. Those of you who are Bible scholars will remember that in Acts chapter 6 that Stephen was preaching to people who got very offended. He was arrested. And in chapter 7 you read about his testimony before his accusers and before the judges that he had to stand before the Sanhedrin. And then he was ultimately stoned for heresy. He was stoned, killed, marked the first Christian to give his life. Well, persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered. And you had men like Philip who went to Samaria to preach the gospel. See, the church at that point had been around for several years, and they were experiencing the presence of God. And God was at work, but they had to be forced to sin. They had to be forced to sin. They didn't get to sin. They had to be forced to sin. And so God created circumstances where they didn't really have a choice. And a persecution broke out. And they they went out. And Philip went to Samaria. Now, Samaritans were not pagans. Samaritans were not Gentiles. Samaritans were partially Jewish. And he preached the gospel to them. And a great movement of God took place as people came to Christ. And then you'll remember that in the midst of this wonderful movement of God, that the Holy Spirit spoke to him, and he goes out in the middle of nowhere and speaks to an Ethiopian eunuch, a official, a second chair kind of a guy, the most powerful man in Ethiopia, second only to the queen. But he was also some kind of a God-fearing person, and that's a technical term, not just an adjective, not just a nice thing to say, but he, he was exploring Judaism. He was exploring the Bible. He wanted to know some things. And Philip was sent out in the middle of nowhere to meet with this man, and he came to Christ. He went back to Ethiopia, and there's a church still there to this day. Now, it's tradition-bound. It's, it's 
but, and it's ancient, and it doesn't preach the gospel like we do, but where did it start? People don't know. We know, we know, because the Bible tells us what happened. And Philip was led to go out to that man. He was sent to that man. Peter was sent to a true Gentile named Cornelius. And, um, and when he goes to Cornelius, he's a centurion. He's, he's been worshiping in the back of the synagogue. He has been exploring faith in God. He is not a true, total, ignorant, pagan kind of a person. He, he knows some things. He's still Gentile, though. And as Peter goes to him, led by God, propelled by God to go to him, dispersed because of the persecution of Stephen, he goes to him, and it's just like the Lord, the man got saved. And the Holy Spirit fell on him, and they began to speak in tongues just like they did on the day of Pentecost, and Peter had to go back to Jerusalem and explain what in the world he was doing preaching to Gentiles. And that's what happened just before we read this, these verses in chapter 11. Because in chapter 11, what happens is that some of the people who were scattered under Stephen's persecution, they went to Cyprus, they went to Cyrene. Some of those guys got saved. Uh, they, they, they were Hellenistic Jews. They, they were Greek-speaking Jews. They weren't Jewish, Hebrew-speaking Jews, but they were still Jewish. And, and they went out preaching. They kept going north. They kept going north, and they were preaching to other Jewish people. And people were being saved. But then something amazing took place. Some of these guys, we don't know their names, went to Antioch. Antioch was like the crossroads of the Roman Empire. You had every kind of person, every kind of nationality, every kind of religion, and every kind of sin you can imagine in Antioch. And they went there and began to preach the gospel, and people got saved. And the Bible says they preached the Lord Jesus. That's significant. They didn't preach Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. Gentiles had no background to know about a promised Messiah. They didn't understand that there was a kingdom coming. They didn't know that. But these guys went and they preached the Lord Jesus. And it says the hand of the Lord was with them. You know what that means? Power. Power. It wasn't in their strength, their persuasion, their ingenuity. They preached the Lord Jesus. And people got saved. And then, and then the church in Jerusalem hears about it and they send Barnabas up there to see what's going on. All of these Gentile people are being saved. Something has got to be wrong with that. This is after Peter's already been through the grinder to have to explain what he did with Cornelius. So Barnabas goes up there, son of encouragement. That's what his name means. He is thoroughly Jewish. He is a Levite, but he loves the Lord. And he goes there and he says, I, he sees the grace of the Lord. And what God has done, the unmerited favor of God is on this group of people. And the Bible says he was glad. There's no words in here by accident, by the way. He was glad. What a contrary spirit to the spirit of those who are saying, you can't talk to those people. You can't tell Jesus, tell people about Jesus who look like that, smell like that, dress like that, act like that. You can't go to those people. Now, the Bible says he was glad. And, um, and he goes and gets Paul, and Paul comes. Paul's just down the road about 70 miles away in Tarsus, and they go and get him. And he comes back and it says for a whole year, they taught those people. Now what did they teach them? The Bible says that at the end of that year, that all the neighbors of those believers had a new name for those people. You know what the new name was? Christian. 
means someone belonging to Christ. The I-A-N part means belonging to. A Herodian was someone who was part of the Herod's fan club. He was a groupie. If you were a Herodian, you were part of the Herod group. If you're a Christian, you're part of the Christ group. And you're, you belong to Christ. And whatever was happening, whatever they were learning, whatever they were being taught, today we would just call them Jesus people. That's all they were. They were just Jesus people. And the way they lived and the way they talked and the way they acted betrayed an inner passion that everybody could see. Christian and non-Christian alike could see it in those people. Now, how did that get started? Well, here's what I want you to see in verse 23, chapter 11. When he came, Barnabas, and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart, that means an Something with intentionality, and it's on a heart level. It's in the inner man. It's the part nobody can see. That in the hidden part of who you are with intentionality, they should continue with the Lord. And that word continue, the root of that word, is the same word you get abide from in John chapter 15. You all remember the word abide? We studied it last fall. Jesus said, abide in me, and I in you. As a a branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine, if you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. And so, what was Barnabas teaching? He was teaching what Jesus taught. Teach him whatsoever things I've commanded you. And so he just did that. He didn't know any better. He said, now look, guys, here's what you're going to have to do. On a heart level where nobody else can see, but you and God, on a heart level, you've got a decision to make. You need to make a choice that you're going to make Jesus, you're going to make yourself conscious of Jesus and his presence in your life all the time. You're going to make Jesus your environment. You're going to stay with him, continue with Christ, but you've got to do this on a heart level. This isn't about joining the First Baptist Church of Antioch. This isn't about membership in a club. It's about something that has to happen on a heart level. Devotion to Christ on a heart level. These guys had an inner passion, an inner passion. Now, to some degree or other, that existed in the entire church, but here it was different. It was like a fire. They were first called Christians in Antioch. There's a reason for that. Nothing in this Bible is here by accident. Here's the second thing I want you to see. Not only was there an inner passion, there was a supernatural lifestyle. It was a supernatural lifestyle. Look again at verse 27 of chapter 11. There was this uh, prophet named Agabus who came up from Jerusalem. He stood up and showed by the Spirit there was going to be this great famine throughout the world. And, And then as a consequence of that prophetic word, which simply means he spoke something that God brought to mind, as a consequence of this prophecy, the church heard that, and it says that the disciples, each according to his ability, not your inability, but according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. Now, why do I say that that betrays or exposes a supernatural lifestyle? For this reason. If I came to you today and said they need relief money in North Carolina because there's been a flood there, and you gave, that may or may not have been a supernatural transaction. It could be. But it may or may not have been. 
But if I'd come to you in mid-August and said, Church, we need to gather up some resources. There's going to be a flood in North Carolina. And you said, I think God's in that statement. And you began to sense the presence of God guiding you, stirring your heart to give. And we gathered up the offering and we sent it to North Carolina before the storm hit. That's a supernatural lifestyle. When God prompts you, convicts you, convinces you to do something, to take a step of faith, to go see someone, to pick up the phone and call someone, to to take any kind of action when he prompts you to do that, and you're acting merely because the Holy Spirit said, just because he spoke to your heart, and you're acting in response to the Holy Spirit, that's supernatural living. Natural living is, here's a need, let's take an offering, everybody meet it. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. We're going to do that here after the sermon. Nothing wrong with that. But we're talking about not more than, more than offerings. We're talking about this afternoon. We're talking about Monday. We're talking about Tuesday. We're talking about Wednesday. Are you living naturally, just doing the best you can under your circumstances? Are you living supernaturally? And you have within you a peace, you have a joy, you have a capacity for love, you have a capacity for patience, you have a capacity for gentleness. You have these things because of your walk with God. There's a supernatural element to your life. You pick up the phone, call somebody because God brings somebody to mind and you just share with them, you know, God just brought you to mind. Can I just pray with you over the phone? And they start weeping. You don't know why they're weeping because something just happened at that very moment and you called at just the right moment supernatural living. That's what marked these people. There's a third characteristic here. I'm going to call it consuming worship. Consuming worship. We look again at verse uh, chapter 13, and we see these men gathered together, six men, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger. That means more, very few people would expect that he was from anywhere except Africa. So we have an African-American well, he's not American. We just have an African in the mix. <laughs> Lucius of Cyrene. Most, most likely, I don't, can't prove this, he may have been one of the first guys that took the gospel to Antioch. He may have been the guy who started all of this. Lucius of Cyrene. Manan, you talk about somebody who came from high social circles. He was raised with Herod the Tetrarch, most powerful man in, in Palestine. He was raised with that guy. He knew people. He had power. He had influence. But on this particular day, that's not what he was doing. And then it says Saul was there. So here are these six men. And these men, it says in verse 2, as they ministered, to the Lord and fasted. It didn't say they ministered for the Lord. They ministered to the Lord. There's a big difference, y'all. Have you ever done something just because you thought it would bless the Lord? 
Have you ever done something just because I think if I do this, it's just going to bless him. It's going to praise him. So many times you and I go to pray, and I do it too. I go to pray, and I, I, and I, I know I'm supposed to praise the Lord first, and so I'll praise the Lord. It's real. It's from the heart. I praise him, but then I move on to things that I need to pray about because he wants me to pray about those things, and he does. But have you ever come and just sat before the Lord and said, Lord, I'm not here to ask you for anything. I'm just here to bless your heart. I'm just here to worship you. I'm not here to get anything, Father. I'm just here to praise you and thank you for loving me, for being my God. I just want to bless you, Lord. These men were consumed with that kind of worship. Consumed by it. That's who they were. That was their heart. They weren't worshipers just on Sunday morning. And it wasn't about worship that involved singing. This was worship that involved the whole life. Oh God, I just want to please you with my life. In Hebrews eleven six, 6, without faith it is impossible to please God. And so we know that just by praying, we're trusting that he hears, we're trusting that he exists, and then you just go a step further and just say, God, I just want to please you with my prayer life. I just want to please you with my daily life. I want to please you in my marriage. I want to please you in my workplace. I want to please you in the way I deal with other people. I just want to please you, Lord. All-consuming worship. Try it sometime. Next time you have a quiet time, next time you go to pray, just say, God, today I am here to minister to you. Number four, last thing. I see this inner passion. I see a supernatural lifestyle. I see consuming worship to him, not for him. But then I see spirit directed mission spirit directed mission as they ministered to the Lord and fasted verse 2 the Holy Spirit said now he's speaking to a group the Holy Spirit said now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them and that word called the tense of that verb y'all called them is perfect tense. It means that I've already called them at some point in the past. That call is complete. That call is finished. There's nothing that can be added to that call, and I'm not taking it back. This call is, is completely done. And so he says, now he's informing them, separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Not that I am calling them, they're already called men. They're already called. And dear one, when God gets ready to send you, that calling, that direction that you receive from the Lord has been in his heart a long time. It's not something he thought of today. Not something he made up. Something's been on his mind since before you were born. He said, separate them for the work to which I have called them. And, and it says, then having fasted and prayed, they did a lot of fasting and praying, just, just noting that, and laid hands on them, 
They sent them away. Now listen to verse 4. They sent them away, verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. One verse says they sent them out. The next verse says the Spirit sent them out. In both cases, they're sent people, right? But who was behind it all? Who orchestrated it? Who directed it? The Holy Spirit said. This wasn't a planning meeting. How can we reach Win Arkansas? This wasn't a planning meeting. How can we reach Arkansas for Christ? And we sat around and pulled our best ideas, and we put it all on the board, and we said, now let's raise money to do this, and we're going to go do it that way. None of that. This wasn't a planning meeting. This was a prayer meeting. And in the midst of that prayer meeting, God already has a plan. He's already called them. He already knows the work. He already knows where he's sending them. He already has the plan. He doesn't need your plan. He's waiting on us to come to him in consuming worship. And then the Spirit takes over. I want you to go see that person. I want you to do this in your family. I want you to go do this in your workplace. I want you. He's the head. We're the body. Pastor's job, equip the saints for the work of ministry. Not to do all the ministry, but to help the saints Get into a relationship with the Lord. That's what Barnabas was doing. Help them get to a place where on a heart level they can hear God and follow him as he leads and directs and guides them. And as you follow Paul through the rest of the book of Acts, my goodness, did the Holy Spirit lead the man? Three chapters later, you're going to read about an incident where he's crossing through Asia Minor, not too far from where he's sitting at that moment. Crossing through Asia Minor, wants to go into a Ephesus wants to go to Asia, incredibly populated, 300,000 people. Eric, he wants to go share the gospel there. It says the Holy Spirit forbade him. You think he was a man that took every step because he was led by the Spirit to take that step? Absolutely. He knew when he wasn't supposed to do something. He knew when he was supposed to do something. He tried to turn north into to Mysia, go to Mysia and Bithynia, and, and the Spirit of Jesus, it says, stopped him. How does that happen? If I am not walking in the Spirit, if I'm not walking with an atmosphere of Jesus, if I'm not walking into the sense that He is with me and speaking to me, has things to say to me, if I will just wait on Him. Supernatural lifestyle, inner passion, consuming worship. The result, Spirit-led mission. And the word mission is Latin for sending. Spirit-led sending. And dear one, when he's in charge and he's doing the sending, buckle up. It doesn't get any better than that.